This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. It's been 3,214 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 295 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, open-source intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We'd like to remind our listeners that our team will be taking a well-deserved break for a few days in December and January, so we will not be publishing new episodes on December 25th and 26th, nor on December 31st and January 1st, and we will be focusing on special reports in the first week of January. Our full situation reports and regular update podcasts will start up for 2023 on January 11th. Of course, if there are any major developments during that time, we'll jump in with coverage and analysis. With that out of the way, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, Army General Sergei Sorovyakin, has increased the operational tempo to create a political victory before December 31st by employing the same strategy as his predecessor, Colonel General Alexander Lapin, on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Second, We maintain that Russia is still conducting stealth mobilization, and it's almost certain that the second wave of partial mobilization will begin in January or February 2023, despite Kremlin denials. Third, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished further and is now a remote possibility during the winter months. Fourth, We assess that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue at least through December 22nd. Fifth, we maintain Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed, or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Sixth, we maintain that a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction is possible. Seventh, our assessment that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing more unrest outside the Kremlin was accurate, with numerous Russian mill bloggers openly criticizing the Kremlin, tactics, strategy, intentional disinformation spread by Russian state media, and the treatment of Mobix. Eighth, 
We maintain that Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu is reaching a point where his continued leadership of the Russian Federation Armed Forces is at risk, and that it will be politically difficult to blame Army General Sodovikin, commander-in-chief of the Russian Aerospace Forces, for failing to defend Russian airbases. Ninth, we maintain that neither belligerent will enter an operational pause over the winter. Tenth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat-ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Eleventh, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin to be combat effective due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. And finally, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. The operational tempo slowed across the Luhansk axis with positional fighting and skirmishes along the line of contact, with control moving 1,000 to 1,500 meters in both directions, sometimes more than once during the day. On the Svatova axis, other analysts aligned with our assessment from yesterday that Ukrainian forces resecured Novoselivsky. Mercenaries with Wargonzo reported continued fighting in the area. On the Kremina axis, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported Ploshanka was shelled throughout the day, and the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported continued fighting. There was only positional fighting west of the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, in Chervonopopivka. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and former Mobik, Igor Girkin-Strelkov, wrote that Ukraine now has full fire control of the P-66 highway G-lock from Svatova to Kremina. Southwest of Kremina, the Russian MOD reported fighting near Dibrova on the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border. On the Lysychansk axis, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported positional fighting east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with no change in the situation. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, JCCC, reported another HIMARS strike on Kadyevka, with 10 rockets striking a military or industrial target, according to Strelkov. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that an ammunition depot was destroyed in the attack, and that a military barracks for Russian troops was next to the targeted area. Alexei Gitmansky, a spokesperson for the JCCC, told reporters that 556 rockets fired by HIMARS had hit targets in the occupied regions of Luhansk since June 24th. The Russian MOD has claimed their forces have destroyed over 65 M142, M270, and Mars-2 launchers, which is more than the total deployed to Ukraine, and have intercepted more than 50% of the rockets fired from the platforms. In northeast Donetsk, we know this feels like it's on repeat because it kinda is, and the line of conflict north of Yakovlivka is frozen. On the Lysychansk and Popozna axis, mercenaries with PMC Wagner backed by the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR continued their attempts to advance on Virknokamyanskia, with Operation Epic Fail successfully executed. To be clear, the advance failed. Russian forces continue to shell Ukrainian positions in Spirna to lock them in place, 
but continued to make no attempts to advance on the village. Wagner also continued their attempts to cross the T-1302 highway at Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, and remain locked in place near the quarry. Ukrainian forces are stabilizing their defensive lines on the Solidarbach-Mut axis. Yaroslav Lysenko, a spokesperson for the Freedom Battalion of the National Guard of Ukraine, reported that PMC Wagner was using penal units to attack Ukrainian positions in waves, which initially overwhelmed defensive positions. Lysenko said that Ukrainian forces had adjusted their strategy and that adding fresh reinforcements was helping stop the Russian advance. Although the somewhat reliable Russian sources we follow reported continued fighting, the enthusiasm expressed over the weekend was gone. Ukrainian forces held the defensive lines in Yakovlivka and kept PMC Wagner, supported by the Donetsk People's Republic or DNR 1st Army Corps, east of the T-1302 highway. Fighting continued on the eastern edge of Solidar. Mercenaries with Rybar reported that two strongholds, quote, near Solidar were captured by PMC Wagner, while Strelkov reported no gains over, quote, the last few days. Strelkov's summaries carry a lot of weight, as he has consistently been one of the most reliable sources of battlefield information since May. Fighting in the center of Bakhmutska continued with no change in the situation. On the Bakhmut axis, the situation was stable at the time of recording. PMC Wagner's December 13th claim of a significant advance toward Pithorodne, northeast of Bakhmut, was false, as we had assessed based on available intelligence. Rybar reported a, quote, continued advance, but did not provide any more specifics, and the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions were shelled. There is growing consensus that Russian forces have crossed Fedora Maximenka Street in Bakhmut and control two to four blocks of private homes, and significant doubt that PMC Wagner has gained control of the sparkling wine factory. There wasn't any significant social intelligence in the last 24 hours, and changes to the terms of service for Twitter on December 14th sent a chill across the open-source intelligence community, making crowdsourcing data more difficult. Strelkov described the fighting east of Bakhmut as, quote, fierce skirmishes, while Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting and strongly implied no change to the line of conflict. Wagner's December 13th claim that 90% of Opitne was captured was false. The most intense fighting on the Bakhmut axis, though, continues to be in this region. South of Bakhmut, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions were shelled in Klishivka and Avdiivka, the one in Donetsk, with no reports of major fighting in the area. The situation around Kurdyumivka and Ozarianivka is complicated due to a lack of social intelligence and poor weather conditions preventing the analysis of satellite images. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in both towns were shelled throughout the day. This would indicate that Ukrainian troops have entered Ozadyanivka and a counteroffensive effort is happening west of the T-513 highway. We believe this because of the geolocated combat video southeast of Avdiivka and the reports of fighting, quote, for control of the road to Kurdyumivka from Morgonzo on December 13th. Yesterday, Wargonzo reported that Russian forces launched an attack, quote, from Kurdyumivka, but didn't provide any additional information, which, for Russian sources, usually means the attack didn't go well.
We've observed a pattern of Russian troops not holding reserve forces from the defensive positions where they launch an attack. When an attack fails, there isn't a capable defense from the starting point, forcing Russian troops to move to the next line. Okay, some assessment. Based on the available information, we believe that fighting in Kurdyumivka is still happening in the area of the railroad station, and PMC Wagner, supported by DNR and LNR separatists, attempted to take back lost positions, which failed. Ukrainian forces established positions in the northwest corner of Ozaryanivka, east of the canal and the road to Kurdyumivka. Russian forces then shelled those new positions, attempting to force the Ukrainian troops out. We maintain both settlements are contested. The GSAFU also reported that Ukrainian positions in Mayorsk were shelled. In southwest Donetsk on the Avdiivka axis and southwest of Novoselivka Druha, the 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Vesele to improve their positions near Krasnohorivka. For clarity's sake, this is not the Vesele where the Donetsk International Airport is located, but a hamlet on the H-20 highway. The Russian attack was repulsed. The Russian MOD claimed that the 1st Army Corps captured Vodyana, information not shared by the People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Telegram Channel. There are claims that up to 50 Ukrainian soldiers were taken as prisoners. There was a significant attack on Ukrainian positions in Pervomaiske, with Russian troops making minor gains. DNR separatists attempted another advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske, once again without success. Both Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting in Marinka, described as tactical and a, quote, meat grinder by Strelkov, adding that the DNR made no gains. A geolocated video showed a Russian tank supported by light infantry engaging Ukrainian forces east of Druzhby Avenue. DNR separatists were either pushed back one or two city blocks or overstated their earlier gains. Russian sources continue to insist that Ukrainian troops are cut off. You can look at the map and decide for yourself. Quick sidebar, if you are a newer listener, you can find our war map at www.rusvukrmap.com. Fighting was reported around Pobida, and the DNR carried out Operation Epic Fail 2 in Novomikhailivka, obviously not succeeding there either. On the Vuladar axis, Russia's December 13th attempt to advance on Vuladar from Pavlivka was another case of leaving an inadequate reserve to hold the launching point if the attack failed. There were multiple reports that Ukrainian forces were able to recapture lost positions. In our assessment, Ukrainian troops now hold 25 to 33 percent of the town. Strelkov condemned the attack due to Russia's continued strategy of attacking Ukrainian strongpoints head-on instead of probing for weaknesses. The Russian MOD claimed Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Novomayorsk without success. Multiple Russian sources reported fighting in Neskuchne, south of Velika Novosilka. The People's Militia of the DNR-PR channel claimed their forces destroyed two main battle tanks, or MBTs, and eight, quote, armored and automotive vehicle units. They released a video showing one tank being destroyed, and they made no claims of taking prisoners of war. Ukrainian forces carried out 225 fire missions on the occupied territories. Occupied Horlivka and Donetsk were shelled with artillery, mortars, and rockets, with nine people wounded. 
it's unclear who is shelling the region, with Strelkov reporting that Ukraine is striking military and industrial targets and the, quote, areas near them. Russian sources were claiming that Donetsk experienced its most widespread shelling since 2014. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. Once again, there was mutual shelling by both belligerents in Kherson, with the free Ukrainian territories experiencing the heaviest shelling since the November 10th liberation. Russian forces conducted 81 fire missions, targeting the city administration building, residential areas, and electrical and heating infrastructure, knocking out heat to parts of Kherson. The water had to be drained to prevent the pipes from bursting in the cold weather, and people in the impacted neighborhoods were told to evacuate. The strikes wounded 13 and killed three people, including an eight-year-old boy. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. In November, we reported Alexander Volga-Kolokov, a Russian collaborator and city administrator of occupied Enerkhodar, was fired by Russian officials. Kolokov told reporters the day after his termination that he had resigned and was being considered for a new position. Apparently, he accepted a new job as a fugitive with a warrant out for his arrest. Russian officials have accused Kolokov of theft, fraud, and embezzlement. We have to imagine that if you angered Ukraine and Russia, and you're a wanted war criminal by one and a wanted common criminal by the other, there aren't too many places on the planet you're going to be able to hide. Also, after 10 months of war coverage, how is one even accused of fraud, theft, and embezzlement by the Russian Federation? That bar is very high. In other news, Enerhodar has a new city administrator, Gauleiter Eduard Nikolaevich Sinavoza, the former general director of a services company at the Smolensk nuclear power plant in Russia, figured that becoming the city administrator of a town on the line of conflict in Ukraine was a wise career move. We recommend keeping the fraud, theft, and embezzlement, if not to a minimum, at least lower than your predecessor, and having someone you don't care about start your car for you. Ooh, another tip. The 200 Chechens assigned to Enerhodar are not only a danger to Ukrainians, but also to Russians themselves. Windows, traffic lights, um, birds as well. Um, you, you get the idea. Colonel Vladimir Bondarenko, the former head of the Vasilyevsky Rayon Police Department until resigning over the summer, who disappeared on October 6th from his Melitopol home, may have been found. Bondarenko's car was located in a remote area outside the city, destroyed by fire with a charred corpse inside. He was never accused of being a collaborator, but questions have been raised on why Russian officials never took him into custody as a senior leader of the Ukrainian police. Rybar released an updated map of Zaporizhia on December 14th, showing a significant area between Orihiv and Huliapola that had been under Russian control and liberated by Ukraine. The area was sparsely populated farmland with two villages, Mirna and Zahirna. We adjusted our map based on both Ukrainian and Russian reports that the region is under Ukrainian control. In the rest of Zaporizhia, Russian forces remain in a defensive posture, with artillery and tank fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orehiv to Mali Shirbaki. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, 
there was no information on the status of the Black Sea Fleet. On the road between Krasnoperekops and Zhangkoi, that's the E-97 highway, large piles of concrete tetrahedrons, also called dragon's teeth, and prefabricated concrete bunkers, derisively called septic tanks, were dumped into haphazard piles. So that's going well. Vitali Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that there had been no contact with civilians living on the Kinburn Spit in four months. He added, quote, Russians are shelling all watercraft that could deliver aid, so contact is unrealistic, end quote. Well, so much for those November rumors, claiming that Ukrainian forces landed in the area and had occupied up to three villages. In western and central Ukraine, Russian forces continue to attack Nikopol, Marchenets, and Chervonohryorivka in Dnipropetrovsk. Up to 40 grad rockets fired by MLRS hit all three communities, targeting residential areas and civilian infrastructure. There were no injuries reported. In economic news, the Russian ruble fell to an exchange rate of 65 for one U.S. dollar in very light trading. Oil prices were mixed, with WTI crude climbing to $77 a barrel and Brent unchanged at $81. Russian Ural's crude climbed again, reaching $58 a barrel. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market climbed to $2.23 a gallon, or $0.59 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures rose, hitting €135 Euros per megawatt hour for January 2023 delivery, and 136 euros for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures were up, climbing a few pennies to $7.53 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.